Proverbs 13.12 Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Father, with this word of wisdom, this saying, this this axiom of Solomon, we ask that you will give us new and fresh insight. And especially this morning, I just ask, Father, that you would change our hearts. We have this tendency that needs to be broken in us and changed. And I pray, Lord, that you will fill us up this morning in this place. You will fill us up with the only kind of hope that works and that counts. And may that hope be overflowing, Father. Come Holy Spirit, teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking you to take your pulse, not so much physically, but spiritually and emotionally. Check your pulse. Is your heart lagging? Have you found yourself in this season of life more often than not kind of depressed or down? Not necessarily because of the bleariness of the weather. Are you listless in your soul because there's something you've been waiting for, wishing for, longing for, and hoping for, and it's just not happening? It's not coming. And you're starting to wear out just in the process. Have you prayed for healing in your life and it hasn't come? Have you asked for a restored marriage or a happier marriage and nothing changes? Is there something in your life you've been hoping for, longing for, a mate, a career, a dream, and you're beginning to wonder if you're ever going to see it? If it's ever really going to come together? Or have you just given up hoping altogether? We talked about hope a few months back in Psalm 42, and I quoted Proverbs 13, verse 12 at the time. We considered that. But there's something here in this verse we need to go a little bit further, something of profound significance to realize in what I believe the Lord is saying through Solomon here. And we need to revisit this concept, this idea of hope, because even though we talked about it in Psalm 42, here we are a few months later, and I detect in my own life that hopelessness tends to kind of creep back in. And I've heard conversations, and I've received prayer requests, and and I can tell that, you know, there's just kind of a lagging hope in this economy, in this country, in our families, in our lives. Christian or not, doesn't seem to make a difference. There's just kind of a, a lagging hopelessness. Here's what I want you to understand, and I think the Lord would have us understand about this proverb this morning. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. This proverb is not an explanation. It's not a generic explanation. In other words, hope deferred makes the heart sick, therefore the reason I'm sad is because I'm not getting what I've been waiting for. Explanation, so the Bible's right, hope deferred does make the heart sick. That kind of perspective, gang, I call theologically Eoric justification. <laughs> Eoric just hope deferred makes the heart sick. I'm sad, depressed, and discouraged because I'm not getting what I hope for. And I got to ask the question, why do we, and especially those who know Jesus, why do we focus so much on the negative? How is it that Christians who proclaim Jesus and, and, and claim to know Him and that He's coming and that there's good on the horizon, how is it that Christians end up negative and hopeless in our lives? The Spirit of the living God here in Proverbs 13.12 is not just defining hopelessness. Biblical hope 
is confident expectation. Confident expectation. When the Bible talks about hope, it is not the same way that we talk about hope or use the word in this world. Biblical hope is confident expectation. It is the absolute certainty that good is on the way. When the Bible talks about hope, that's the deal. Absolute certainty that good is coming. Good is on the way. Paul says in Romans 8.24, In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen, that's not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. The Hebrew word for hope, and we're going to break down this verse as much as we possibly can here this morning. The word hope is literally in Hebrew tohalet, and it means positive expectation. Positive expectation. The word tohalet is only used in the positive in the Hebrew Scriptures. The uh, theological workbook of the Old Testament has this to say, This hope is not a pacifying wish of the imagination which drowns out troubles, nor is it uncertain as in the Greek concept of hope. By the way, do you realize how much the whole Greek Western mindset has messed us up? <laughs> the Greek concept of hope is a wavering, waffling kind of a concept. It's, a, it's, it's like the philosophers. It could go either way. But the Hebrew concept of hope is positive, confident, expectation. They say it's it's not uncertain. Rather, it is the solid ground of expectation for the righteous. It's Job crying out in Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. It's David declaring in Psalm 71.14, As for me, I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. It's Micah the prophet in Micah chapter 7, verse 7, saying, As for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. How do you know, Micah? I know. I have a confident expectation. I've got biblical hope. And notice, by the way, that these three guys, Job, David, and Micah, all begin with, As for me. Which means they're not saying, as for what everybody around me says, that's what I believe. No, as for me, I don't care what anybody else says. I'm not listening to the world for my hope. As for me, I have confidence in the Lord that He's going to do what He said He would do. That's biblical hope. That's not biological hope. Or worldly hope. The hope of the world does waffle. It's it's hope without reason. It's hoping in achieving some kind of limited short-term happiness that ultimately leaves you unsatisfied. That's the hope of the world. William Arnault, in his studies in Proverbs, put it this way, and I love this great picture of worldly hope. He said, it's like the troubled seas when it cannot rest. You stand on the shore of the ocean, you gaze at the restless waters. A wave is hastening on, struggling and panting and making with all its might for the shore. It seems as if all it wanted were to reach the land, and it reaches the land and disappears with a hiss of discontent. Gathering its strength in the distance, it tries again, and again, and again, with the exact same result. It is never satisfied. It never rests. That's worldly hope. You know, you're hoping over and over. I'm just continuing to hope, but it just ends up with a... And I'm right back where I started. So we'll try again. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
Ultimately, it's exhausting. We have another word for that, by the way, and that's despair. Which is where hope deferred lands us. It's where worldly hope will eventually land you because you're not going to achieve what you hope you would achieve. Look at those in our world that our culture says has achieved great things. You know, the stars. Look at how messed up their lives are. Why is that? Because when they get to the so-called top, they end with a hiss on the shore. Biblical hope is the absolute certainty that good is on the way. I know good is coming. Proverbs 13.12 is not a generic explanation of what happens when hope is left unanswered. Rather, listen, it's an exhortation. Not explanation, but exhortation. What's the difference? It's Solomon, by the Spirit, telling his sons, look, don't defer hope. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. Don't go there. Don't do that. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled, that's a tree of life. The word for deferred there in the Hebrew is mashak, and it means literally to drag off or to put away. Hope put away. When I defer hope, when I put it away, the effect will be spiritual, it will be emotional, and it will be physical sickness. That's what the Bible tells us. When I set aside hope, that's when my spiritual pulse starts to slow down. That's when my passion for the Lord and the things having to do with God in this world gets a little slow because things are just not working out so well. That's when my spiritual blood pressure drops. You all know, or many of you know, that I've had this weird thing happen a couple of times called myocarditis, which is a heart thing, and it's where the myocardium gets inflamed. And they don't know why. Usually a virus, you have the flu or something, and somehow it goes after the heart. It happened to me two times, like lightning striking twice. It's been a couple of years, and I'm feeling good. You know, I'm sure the Pop-Tarts don't help, but still, I'm feeling good. I got clear arteries, I got a clean bill of health and all that. But I was thinking back about this whole issue of, of my spiritual pulse begins to slow. And I remember the second time this happened to me, it was early in the morning, and I was feeling just awful. And I got up and I, I got a glass of water, came back to the bedroom, and the, the whole bedroom started to spin. So I head straight to the bathroom, I'm down on the floor, you know, I'm thinking, okay, holding on, ready to go, you know. And, and as I sat there, it, it, it eased up a bit, so I half crawled back to bed, and everything was spinning. Well, you know what was going on? I didn't know it. My blood pressure had dropped to 80 over 40. Oh my. Yeah. So I'm just going, ah, ah. we're going to take you to the hospital. Ah. And when that happens, gang, see, that's what happens with hope in our lives. When we defer it, when we put it off, and we say, you know, I just, I, it's not worth hoping anymore, suddenly our blood pressure drops. And it's not just spiritually and emotionally, gang. It is a physical thing as well. Do you know that medical science has proven to us that hope makes a difference in our physical bodies? That actually, simple hope re- results in an increase of endorphins released in our bodies. If you can just add hope to somebody. Studies also suggest the release of epinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, streaming out of the pituitary and the hypothalamus glands. And what happens is these neurotransmitters create a sense of well-being in us. Healthy, good well-being. Same thing happens if you're a runner. It releases those endorphins and you start to feel better. And hope does that. And this is a proven thing. We were created physically... For hope. God knew when He made us, I'm going to make them so when they start to hope in me, when faith emerges, they're going to feel better. 
And it's true. And it works. By contrast, hope deferred, put off, cast aside, causes illness and even death. The worst thing an ailing person can do is give up. And they say in nursing homes, especially when someone gives up, when they decide to just cash it all in, that's a dangerous time. Because hope has been set aside. Worst thing you can do. David says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. He's the help of my countenance and my God. And I love how David says that. Hope in God. He's the help of my countenance. Just thinking about God, just focusing on Jesus, brightens my face, my countenance, my physical reaction gets better. Hope in God. I will hope in God. We looked at that a few months ago, talked about it, and what we saw then was that hope in God is just not a worldly hope. It's not hoping in our flimsy, vain attempt to change things in our lives. It's not hoping vaguely that somehow life's going to get better. And the problem with that, what happens when it doesn't? I, I think we need to consider this a little bit more this morning, this concept of, of hope. And we're going to do it by looking at, at a couple of stories, kind of like we did last week. So keep your finger there and turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I have a question for our senior saints among us. And I'm really bad at at detecting age, especially over about 60 or so. I I can't tell if someone's 60 or 90 or whatever, so I don't know. I was going to say, what is old? Well, that's the thing. What is old? Anything a year older than me is old. (laughs) Let's not go there. Um, But senior saints, those of you, let me me put it this way. If you're in your 70s, mid-70s, 75 or older, somewhere around there, how would you react if the Lord showed up and said, hey, got news for you. You're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. <laughs> now, now what, if, what if you'd never had a child? What if, if, if that had not been a possibility in your life? And you're now 75 years old and the Lord says, hey... I got something for you. You're going to love this. You're going to have a child. That's exactly what happened to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Wait a minute. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. How are you going to do that, Lord? Abram went forth, verse 4, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. We could put it another way. Abram was 75 when he started life. We have no idea really what Abram did before this. 75 years of living, career, wife. We know he was married to a beautiful woman named Sarai. We have no idea what went on before. But we do know this. As far as the Bible is concerned, Abraham was 75 years old when God said, Alright, now you're ready. Let's go. So those of you who are in your late 60s thinking, Yeah, it's time to, it's time to kick back and let other people do it. Not in Abraham's world. He was just getting started at 75. Now skip over to Genesis 15. The story continues. 
time went by. This 75-year-old man and his wife, they head off. They're on a journey. God promised a child. And in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you and literally your very great reward. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? Hello! (laughs) And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, which is his servant. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. The word descendants is seed. God could not get more clear. You will have a son. You will, From your body, Abram, is going to come this nation that I promised. And then, and I love verse 6, He believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. What shred of evidence did this Abram, who is now not 75, but he's quite a bit older already, what shred of evidence did he have to hope in what he was being told? None. Zip. In fact, it gets so bad, you know, he starts to think, well, maybe I just need to, you know, hook up with Hagar or something. Maybe that'll do it. The story goes on, but you need to understand something. Biblical hope, as we're talking about, is married to faith. You don't have one without the other. Part of the reason for the hopelessness in the world is there's no faith for it to be attached to. But where there's faith, hope has a source. And Abraham has this confident expectation, bizarre though it is, a confident expectation that good is on the way. God says I'm going to have a son, I guess I'm going to have it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 tells us, when God made the promise to Abram, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. But not immediately. Not just yet. More time passes. Genesis chapter 18. Skip on over. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 10. Abraham has had an interesting meeting with three men who show up. We find out it's the Lord. And in verse 10, he said, the Lord said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? (laughs) Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, verse 15, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) I am so thankful that we have a God who, in spite of our faithlessness, remains faithful. That we have a God who, in spite of our disbelief, is merciful. He didn't right there shut the door on it and say, okay, Sarah, you don't believe me? Fine. No child for you. No. He said, no, I heard you laughing. 
In fact, I think that kind of thing almost gets God's back up more. I heard you laughing. You're really going to be laughing in nine months, sister. (laughs) Skip over to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verse 1, because that's exactly what happened. The Lord took note of Sarah, just as He said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, which many of you know means laughter. Laughter. Little laughing boy is his name. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was, watch this, 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. You see, her laughter of incredulity became a laughter of incredible joy. And that's what hope does. It's an amazing, wonderful story. How long? From the promise of God originally to the fulfillment of God ultimately? 25 years. How many of you have been waiting for something for 25 years? Okay, a few. One was my count. Two. Are you even 25 years old? So what? All right, you've waited your whole life. You know what? It's, it's absolutely amazing. And understand this. We do this thing emotionally where we hope for something and a week goes by and we're disgusted and disappointed because it hasn't happened yet. 25 years. And when the Lord promises you something, listen, He will follow through. And it might be 25 years. It could be 40 years like Moses in the wilderness just hanging out. But God follows through. I think we need to stretch out of it in our understanding of God's timing. And it might not happen this week, this year, next year, or in 10 years, but 25 years, and God showed up, and Sarah ended up laughing her head off. In fact, notice that. Isn't that great? Hope fulfilled. And here's Sarah, and joy was released, what I would call serotonin. I think that's the best one I've ever come up with. I'm serious. That was laugh out loud alone in my office. I'm like, serotonin, that's funny. Fast forward. Fast forward several hundred years now. The Israelites, the offspring of Abraham, are now some three million strong. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers 13. Numbers 13. What started as one little laughing boy is now some three million people by our estimates. And they have come out of Egypt in an amazing, amazing, miraculous way. You know the story of the ten plagues and out of Egypt they come and they're blessed and they cross the Red Sea with the water piled up. And a stunning display of God's might and authority and supernatural power. And after a two-year journey, they now come to Kadesh Barnea on the border of the Promised Land. Watch what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 13, when the Lord spoke to, He spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent, from them, sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, and all of them, these were men who were heads of the sons of Israel. So leaders, 
Leaders of the group. Guys who stood out. You know, the cream of the crop guys. And Moses says, 12 of you, go, spy out the land. So they do. Verse 23, skip down. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol. And from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two men. How big a cluster are we talking about here? They had to get a pole to carry this thing. And they carried it with two men, some pomegranates and some figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster. Eshkol means cluster. Which the sons of Israel cut down from there. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Milk, honey, and amazing grapes. And the song was written right there. Changed a little for us. Amazing. Big grapes hanging. Serotonin! Thank you. Okay. So... (laughs) So here was something worth hoping for. We've got some produce from the land. This is what God told us it would be like, and it is exactly as He described it. It's absolutely amazing, but there was a sizable problem. And instead of the release of dopamine, these guys were just playing dopes. Read on. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, giants. Larvae giants in the land. Verse 29, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Well, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should all, by all means go up and take possession of it. For we will surely overcome it. See, Caleb didn't see Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, and Canaanites living there. What did he see? Termites, little people. It was not a big deal for him. We can take it because God said we can take it. Let me just add, can we build a building without a mortgage? Can a barn church see something like that happen? Has God said so? I believe He has. I have no concern. I may roll my eyes at environmental rules, but I know it's going to get done. But the men who had gone up with Caleb, verse 31, said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Then all the congregation of Israel lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And one of the first signs of hope deferred, hope put away, hope put off, is grumbling. Griping, moaning, complaining. By the way, what are the names of the ten spies who gave a negative report? Don't look at your Bibles. Just give me one name. What are the names of the two spies who were positive? Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua. So you know that. You hear that. We're aware of them. Isn't it interesting? Out of twelve guys, ten negative spies 
and two positive spies, which means we got a five-to-one ratio of negative to positive, and I think that's pretty much the way it is in the world. For every one positive statement a person makes, there seem to be five negative that are out there that are cramming it down. Are you more characteristically negative than you are positive? You want a little homework this week? Start tracking your negative statements. Every time one pops out of your mouth, make a note of it. And by contrast, try to make a note of each time you have one good thing to say, one hopeful thing, one positive thing. Compare the two. It absolutely astounds me how even believers can be so negative. How we can grumble so quickly and so easily. See, that's why worldly hope fails. Worldly hope hopes for something. It doesn't come about. We immediately go to grumble and gripe. And we get negative and we go down and it's a constant thing, negativity in our world. Constant. The moment Osama bin Laden was captured... I mean, within like five minutes of President Obama's speech, the other side, and I'm not taking sides here, I'm just pointing out what was on the TV, the other side immediately went negative. Which, you know, happens. When when President Bush stood up and said anything positive or good, the other side immediately went negative. It seems to be just human nature. That we got to grumble about, well, yeah, but what about this, what about that, blah, blah, blah. And it's a constant thing, which is why we need to be constantly in the Word. We need to be constant in fellowship one with another. We need to be constant in worship because we've got this constant flow of negative garbage in the world around us. And I suffer from it myself. It was, it was incredible. It was, Thursday afternoon I had finished the study. I was filled with hope. You know, it's a good day. And then, and then Friday I get up, good day, everything's great. And I get home and I get this letter in the mail, this packet really, from the IRS. As most families of recent adoption probably have, you see there's an adoption, adoption tax credit thing that they're doing, and, and, it, and it can be a great blessing, but the IRS is kicking it back to all these families of adoption saying, we need more proof. I'm like, you want proof? Come spend a week at my house. <laughs> I'll give you all the proof you need. But you know what's amazing? I open this up, I look at it, I put it on my desk, and I just went, grumble, grumble, gripe, gripe, complain. And God said, "Um, what about the hope thing? Oh, yeah. What about that one? Incredible. The world says it doesn't look good. Looks kind of negative. You better defer that hope. Put it off for another day. What happened to Israel? Deferred hope made the wandering begin. Which is what happens in our lives. When we put off hoping, we start to wander aimlessly, purposeless, directionless. We have no idea where we're headed. Ironically, it was hope that kept one Israelite alive. Skip all the way over to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I'm not talking about Joshua and Caleb, although I believe hope kept them alive for 40 years and they went right on into the promised land. And you may recall, Mad Dog Caleb, his name means Mad Dog. (laughs) Caleb went out and at the end of all this, went to Joshua and says, hey, I want to settle where the giants are left because you know I want to spend my dying days fighting giants. Right on. That guy had hope. Here's another man filled with hope. Luke chapter 2, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death 
before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms. This old man comes up, grabs Jesus, puts him in his arms, and blesses him and says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Simeon lived long, gang, because he longed for the coming of Christ. Let that be a lesson of hope for you and for me. To live long, to live full, as we talked about a few Sundays back, is to live longing for the coming of Christ. This is absolutely key to hope and to having that confident expectation. Jesus keeps hope alive. Jesus keeps hope alive when there is no reason to hope whatsoever. When, like Abraham, we're looking at the circumstances and we're saying, ain't no way, have you seen my wife? It's not going to happen. How could you say this, Lord? Jesus keeps hope alive. The word fulfilled. Go back to Proverbs 13.12 now. The word fulfilled. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You know what the word fulfilled is in the Hebrew? It's wonderful. It's not wonderful, but it's a wonderful word. The word fulfilled is literally coming. Coming. Desire coming is a tree of life. Desire coming, like the the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of my favorite lines at Christmas time. Come, desire of nations, come. And fix in us thy heavenly home. Jesus, the desire of all nations, came. It was desire coming that filled up the heart of Simeon. Desire coming. He was longing for it. And desire for Jesus coming again will fill your hope and maintain it when nothing else will. He did come. He will come. And desire coming is the substance of all of our hope. Paul says in Titus 2.13, We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.8, In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Those are hopeful people. Those who love His appearing. What, What is your ultimate desire? What is your greatest hope? If it's Christ's coming, you will never be disappointed or sickened by hope deferred. In fact, I encourage you, even this morning, put it out on the table. Just in your heart. Put it out on the table. What are the things I've hoped for that have been left unfulfilled? Get them all out, look at them, and compare them for a moment to the coming of Jesus Christ. Which would you rather have? (laughs) There's no question. Of course I'd rather Jesus come. I remember as a kid, longing for the coming of Christ the night before every single test. But there's something to this, and it's that hopeful expectation. Hey, no matter what happens tomorrow, pass or fail, Jesus is still coming. I tried that with my parents. They still made me study. (laughs) But it keeps our hope alive to desire that coming of Jesus. Christ, having been offered once for all to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9.28, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Longing for Him. 
That's a hope that's alive, not deferred. 1 John 2.28, John says, Little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Man, I start to think about Jesus, and you know what happens? My pulse quickens. Physically, soulically, and spiritually. My pulse quickens. I start to get excited. I start to think about positive, good things. And I start to realize that everything taking place around me, good and bad, is all barreling toward one final, ultimate, glorious conclusion, and that's the coming of Jesus. And that fills up all other hope. So I don't worry about the IRS packet. We'll do what they need to do. We'll send pictures. (laughs) lots and lots and lots of them we will inundate them with information but my hope is not in the IRS I hope yours isn't my hope is in the coming of Jesus Christ like Sarah you can laugh at his promises or you can rejoice in the fulfillment of those promises. Like Israel, you can put off hope and wander aimlessly in despair. Or like Simeon, you can live by longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. The absolute certainty that good is on the way. i got one more story for you. I'm not even going to read it. Let me just tell it to you. You may recall last week, in Mark chapter 5, we read the same story out of Luke. In Mark chapter 5, and you can go check this out later, a synagogue leader comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, ah, can you come with me? My daughter is dying. This is a synagogue leader. This is a leader among the Jews. So he's sticking his neck out there to even go to Jesus. And, and there's just this sense that Jesus can do something. Will you come? Absolutely, Jesus says. So off they go. And the crowd's pressing in. And last week we talked about the mid part of the story. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, comes up to Jesus. And so he's sidetracked, and and she's healed, and they have that conversation, and and everything turns out well. But while that's going on, we're told in Mark 5, that a servant from Jairus' home comes rushing up and says, don't trouble the teacher any longer. Your daughter's dead. Now I want you to sense the reality of this. Okay, It's not just an old Bible story. A father has just been told, it's over. Don't, don't bring him. There's no one to heal. She's died. Jesus looks at Jairus and says, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. You just keep believing. In fact, the word in the Greek, it says believe. In our English translations, the word is keep on believing. You keep on believing. What does he do? Okay, and off they go. And Jesus very sensitively says, since the crowd home, disperses them, says, I want to take Peter, James, and John, but the rest of the apostles don't come with me. We're not going to bring a big parade into this sorrowful situation. So off they go. Peter, James, John, following Jesus and Jairus, and they get there to his home. And there are mourners everywhere. They're weeping and they're wailing. And Jesus says, what are you guys mourning for? child's only sleeping. And immediately these mourners begin laughing at him. Thinking, you've got to be crazy. What are you talking about? She's, she's only sleeping. She's dead. And, and we're told, and I love the way the Bible puts this, Jesus put out the mourners. And he went in with Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and he says, Talitha kum, which in Aramaic means, little girl, get up. She got up. She's healed. Resurrected to life. 
An incredible moment. But don't miss what He did. When all things seemed absolutely hopeless, and when you feel hopeless in your life, and you're saying, I want to hope in Him, I just don't know how to do it. Two things. Number one, you keep on believing. You keep on believing. Even when it doesn't seem possible, you keep on believing. And second, you put out the hopelessness. You just say, I'm not going to have any of that. I'm not going to listen to it. If you've got people around you, nah, 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 grumbling, negative, complaining, put them out. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I like you, but you're really dragging me down right now. Get out of my house. Shuddy. You know, I don't need to hear all the negatives. Jesus, Jesus on the road didn't defer hope. Well, you know, let's see if we can do something. He said, keep believing. And then He gets there and what He puts away is hopelessness. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 12.1 tells us. Hope is the absolute certainty that good is on the way. And Jesus understood that. Jairus, the synagogue leader, learned it. Simeon knew it. Sarah learned it. The game where it comes to biblical hope, you keep on believing, you put out the mourning, you stop deferring hope. That is what Solomon is saying. Don't defer hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire coming is a tree of life. And David said, Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What else is there that matters? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we are not among those who put off hope. We are among those who say, I know the good's coming. It is on the way. And whether I see it right now or not, I'm trusting the Lord for it. Father, we do trust You. And we just pray, Lord, would You by Your Spirit overcome our flesh and put out the mourning that is in us. Father, start with us as individuals. Put the negativity out of us. And put all the doubting and the grumbling. Just, Father, put it away. And in our fellowship, may we never be... We're not, Father. I don't think, unless it's all happening behind my back, but I don't think we're a grumbling fellowship. May we never be but always a people who joyfully expect the best good coming from Jesus in the person of Jesus at His return. May we hope for the best from You right now in our lives because we know our Daddy loves us. And we know You care about us. And we know You can do what we cannot do. So Father, come do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.